weeks. It's been uh, wonderful to be among you. You've all been so hospitable and so welcoming, and uh, Kathy and I, uh, Kathy will be here uh, in a little bit. I uh, just really enjoyed being among you, and uh, it's been a delight to come back since uh, October of 2005, and wow, so much has happened uh, in all our, all our lives since then. I mentioned uh, yesterday that I had cancer when I was here before and didn't know it, and it was, uh, just about two months later would have some life-altering surgery, um, and uh, many, 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 many things uh, have happened since then, so uh, a delight to be back. This conference has been about uh, spiritual disciplines within the church. Yesterday, I distinguished between personal spiritual disciplines, and I have a book there called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. That's the one Chris referred to. That's about personal spiritual disciplines, those you practice alone. But the Bible also refers to spiritual disciplines within the church, what this conference is about, those that we do together. Practices found in the Bible, some that we do alone, some that we do with others that help us to experience God and become more like Jesus. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door. Your Father who sees in secret will hear you. That's a personal spiritual discipline, personal prayer. But the Bible also teaches us to pray with the church. That's an interpersonal, corporate, congregational spiritual discipline. We are to get into the Bible all by ourselves and meditate on Scripture. It's personal. But we're to hear the Word of God preached, read, and taught with the church, with other people. And so I won't go through all of that again, but the Bible teaches both Jesus, our example of walking with God, practice both personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, and Although each of us inclines a little more one way or the other in terms of just the way we're, we're bent. Some of us enjoy being alone more than with groups of people. Others are energized around people and don't like to be alone. Some really uh, get more out of their personal spiritual disciplines than the congregational ones and, and vice versa. But regardless of where each of us finds ourselves on that continuum, we're all to practice both. Most of the time when I'm out, I'm teaching on personal spiritual disciplines like praying the Bible, meditation on Scripture. But this conference I've been asked to talk about interpersonal, corporate, congregational spiritual disciplines. Uh, Friday night, we talked about why I go to church, <laughs> to perhaps the core of the church. We discussed that uh, because we can do a lot of things out of habit. We don't even think about it anymore. That's just what we do on Sunday morning. But uh, Jesus had some pretty strong words about people who did things that merely out of habit and without remembering the reasons for why they did them. And uh, going to church is a good habit, but habits without reason, the reasons are forgotten, that, that's not a good thing. And that can lead to our children thinking that it's a mere habit or tradition and missing uh, the reason for these things. That's kind of where we are this morning when we talk about why I serve in the church. Yesterday, I, I mentioned one of us said probably one of the five most commonly used sermon illustrations of all time. I, I'm going to give another that's probably in the top 25, uh, but it illustrates the point. So this couple gets married, and early on, the young wife wants to impress her husband by uh, fixing a, you know, a nice, uh, a nice uh, roast for him, but she cuts off both ends of it before she cooks it and just kind of leaves it aside. And he said, what are you doing? You're wasting all this meat. She said, well, that's, that's the way my mother taught me. That's the way she's always done it. So they go home uh, to visit her parents before too long, and sure enough, the mom fixes a nice big roast, cuts off both ends, and he looks at that and says, I... I don't get that. Why in the world would you do that? What's the point? She said, that's the way I was raised. That's the way I've done it all my life. That's the way my mother taught me to do that. I don't know any other way to do it. So holidays come, they go to grandma's house. And sure enough, here comes the, the roast and she cuts off both ends. And he says, grandma, why, why do you do that? She said, my pan is too small. 
So she had a reason, but the practice for her practice, but the practice was passed down without the reason being explained. And we're all in danger of that. We're never more than one generation away from apostasy. If we don't explain not only this is what we believe here, but here's why we believe it. And similarly with our practices, it's important for us to, to develop good habits in terms of going to church and the things that we do in the church, but it's also important that we pass down the reasons for these things to our children, to new believers, lest they think, well, this is just an outdated tradition. There's no reason for it to be maintained. But any biblical truth needs to be declared, should be declared. We all need it. It's a good thing if it is declared. And frankly, it's always true that there are those who attend the church, who are members of the church even, who are not really actively serving in the church. So we're going to address that in this equipping hour. December 7th, 1941, in the words of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, is a date that will live in infamy. At 7.50 that morning, a strike force from the Empire of Japan launched an aerial attack on Pearl Harbor, the operating base there in Hawaii for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. 18 ships were hit, more than 200 aircraft were destroyed or damaged, at least 2,400 Americans were killed, and 1,300 wounded. The bombs and the torpedoes caught, uh, or caught the American forces completely by surprise. After months of meticulous planning and practice in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese scored a brilliant tactical victory. In less than two hours, it appeared that they had crippled the U.S. naval power in the Pacific. On the other hand, the raid proved to be a colossal blunder politically and psychologically. Literally overnight, America went from a somewhat unconcerned country trying to stay out of the war to a unified nation intent on winning it. All over America on Monday morning, there were long lines at the recruiting offices. Millions of people were late for work or for school, rushing to join the armed forces without a second thought to their plans for the future. And many of these people showed up late for work or for school only to report they'd be leaving in a very few days uh, for their training. Teenagers, middle-aged men lied about their ages in order to put on the uniform. Grown men wept when they were told they were unfit to fight. Even then, they did all they could to find a way to contribute. My dad presented himself for service but was medically disqualified. So he moved to Arizona from Arkansas just to work as a volunteer who hand-cranked propellers at, uh, to start engines at an airfield. And what a contrast to national conditions just 25 years later, when American soldiers were again needed on the battlefield, but this time the war wasn't nearly as popular. Almost no one volunteered for Vietnam. Most of those who fought had to be compelled into service through military draft, and not a few of those who were conscripted went to college or left the country in order to defer or dodge the draft. When it comes to serving in the local church, it seems that most follow either the World War II model or the Vietnam model. Some are eager to serve, regardless of their age, physical condition. Even though it may involve great personal cost, they will volunteer because their heart compels them to do something for the work of God in the church. But many others appear to do all they can to avoid serving. They don't come looking for ways to serve. You have to go to them. You have to draft them. And when they do serve, they serve very reluctantly. They accept a ministry only out of a sense of obligation, and they count their days until the hitch is up. Which of these two kinds of servants is more like Jesus? Which brings more glory to God? Which has more love for God? 
which demonstrates a knowledge of God more, which enjoys a enjoys God and the people of God more and brings more pleasure to the heart of God. These are the reasons why if you're a Christian, you should serve in the church. So let's review these. First, we should serve in the church in order to be more like Jesus. Remember what he said of himself? He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. On the night before he was crucified, he served his disciples by washing their feet. And that's in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. 27. And th this wasn't some novelty. This characterized his life. Although he was God, he was also the humblest, the most servant-hearted man who ever lived. And never did he demonstrate his willingness to serve in the lowliest form of service more than when he was with the people of God. As he served the Father, so he served the Father's children. And so should we. He didn't come just to forgive our sins, but also to make us holy, to make us like himself. And he didn't live and die for that so that we would be forgiven, but unchanged. Not forgiven and unchanged. The plan of God, predestined from the foundation of the world, we're told in Scripture, is to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's Romans 8, 29. And how is the Son characterized in the Bible? As one who serves. So does it matter to you that you're like Jesus? Do you ever wonder how you can become more like Jesus? Well, one thing you can do is to serve as Jesus served. The work of God in the world is the work of the church. If Jesus were a member of Lakeside Bible Church, do you think he would just show up, watch, and go home? Can you imagine he would do nothing? It's inconceivable, isn't it? Would he simply attend worship, maybe give a little on occasion, then leave? You think he would serve or merely observe? Well, you, you know the answer. Second, we should serve in the church in order to bring glory to God. If you're a Christian, you have been given a spiritual gift. When the Holy Spirit indwelled you, he brought gifts with him, and he gifts all of God's people, and the gifts are for service. Peter divides them in, into two broad categories, speaking gifts and practical serving gifts. In other words, some are gifted in areas of speaking for God, while others are blessed with gifts oriented more toward activity for God. And as I mentioned yesterday, that does not excuse the speakers from helping to set up tables and chairs. That does not excuse the diligent servers from verbalizing the gospel when given the opportunity. But broadly speaking... He has gifted us with gifts either in more toward the speaking category or more toward the practical service category. Whatever your gift, though, God gave it to you for you to use it. And we're to use it, as Peter writes, to, we're to employ it in serving one another. Gifts are for using, and they're to be used to serve one another the Bible says, whatever your gift may be. Follow Peter's thought carefully as I read this um, in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. That's how we use it, serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's how we take care of. That's how we rightly use. That's how we're good stewards of what God has given us when we serve one another. Whoever speaks... Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whether you speak or whether you serve, do it for God, and this brings glory to God when we do that. But a professing Christian who doesn't serve in the church fails to give glory to God in a very noticeable way. John MacArthur speaks to this when he says the church is the place where spiritual gifts are supposed to be ministered. It grieves me that people can be involved with the church superficially and have no ministry. They can be very busy and a whole lot of stuff is going to burn, to perish, and have absolutely no heart for what will alone last forever. 
So, I mean, how can anyone think it brings glory to God when they refuse to work for God? You know, when we serve in the church, that's a testimony and brings glory to God that our God is worth serving. He's worth our time. He's worth serving. His kingdom is so important that it's worth laying down our lives to serve him in that kingdom. And it glorifies before God and the non-Christians, both to those inside and those outside the church who see you serving. But when we don't serve God, that's a testimony that says he's not worth it. Serving God is not worth my time. So you see how, what a poor testimony that is, how that fails to bring glory to God. During high school and college, I worked for my dad uh, in the small town radio station that he managed. I not only loved my dad, but I cared about his reputation, his glory before other people. I, I knew that the quality of my work, which is very public, you know, in the little radio station, the quality of my work would reflect on my dad, not just to my fellow employees, but to people throughout the listening area. If I was lazy, I knew that others who worked at the radio station would have reason to think less of my dad. If I did a poor job on the air, I could imagine people all around the area thinking he hired me only because I was his son and not because I was qualified. And it really grieved me when another announcer or someone else on staff worked carelessly. I didn't want anybody to disregard my dad because of how Others and I worked for my dad. Same is true in the family of God. What does it say about a person's love for God who will not serve God? When a person won't serve God within the local church, which is the main way, God has chosen to do his work in the world. What does that say about a person's love for God? God is not worth it. Who would be attracted to a God who appears to deserve no more affection than that. We should serve God not just because it's, it's a duty, but because it's, it's, a, it's a privilege and it glorifies God. He's worthy of everything we can do for Him, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? So, we serve Him that in all things He might be glorified. Here's the third reason we're to serve in the church, and that is to demonstrate a knowledge of God. We demonstrate that we know God when we serve God. This is an indication you've received His grace. It's not an infallible indication, of course. Anything outward can be duplicated by unbelievers. And the Pharisees are the great example of that. But there are some people who are deceived uh, into thinking uh, they know God, and they're right with God because they serve in the church, and that's a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. We're saved by grace, not by our good works, the Bible says. Serving God doesn't mean you're his child any more than working for somebody it means you're their child. But just because a person serves in the church doesn't mean they serve God. But the person who has turned to God will demonstrate it by serving God. Broadly speaking, those who serve in the local church know God. Those who don't, don't. People can attend and not serve. Unbelievers can attend. But it's very unlikely that you'll notice them consistently working in a local, in a local church. Those who know him tend to show it by serving. There's a passage in Malachi that illustrates this very well. 400 years before Jesus, Malachi said, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. In other words, how do you know who's righteous, who's wicked? Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. In this passage, who is righteous? How do you serve, determine who's righteous, who's wicked? It's those who serve God are the righteous, those who don't are the wicked. Serving God is one of the indications you know God. His Spirit compels you to serve. You, you, can, you can hardly keep them from serving. We can't be content very long while riding the bench in the kingdom of God. 
Another passage here is Ephesians 2.10. You know this one. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those who are created in Christ Jesus have been created by him, predestined for good works. And so many of them are going to be in the local church. How, how do we prove that we know God for a lifetime and not do what we were created to do, prepared to do before the foundation of the world? Well, no, we serve God. And so much of his service is to be in the work that he's ordained in the world. That's through the local church. Then listen to the Apostle Paul's words to Christians in Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will, to desire, and to do his good pleasure. The result of God's work within someone is that they want to do his will. They have the desire and the power, a feeling that you have to do something for God. And unconverted people simply don't have this compulsion. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. You have the desire and the power. What does it look like? Well, well the classic examples happened to you just a couple hours ago. You woke up and many of you had that feeling... I don't feel like going today. But what gave you the willingness to throw off the covers, to get out of bed, get ready, and get here when most of your neighbors don't have that? All glory to God, right? Now, as with all the other spiritual disciplines, they feel like all of you. God didn't get you, levitate you out of the bed, right? And bring you into the bathroom and, you know, into the shower and get your, you're just kind of watching all this happen as you're floating around your hands are moving, you're, you know, all this is going on. No, it felt like all of you, you were, you felt sleepy. You felt like you were pushing yourself to do it while you were sleepy, but you were determined. You had the desire to push through all the lethargy to get yourself here and the power to get it done and to get here. All glory to God. That's what this Passage is saying, Philippians 2.13, he gives you the desire and the power, but it feels like all of you. And incidentally, let me just say that regarding all the spiritual disciplines, God doesn't get you up and move you over to the desk and make your hand throw the Bible open and make your hand move the pages of the Bible, make your head go down, make your eyes go back and forth over the Bible. It feels like all of you. In fact, it's probably worthwhile at this point. Let's look at the very last verse at Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1 to see this. How does grace and effort work together in spirituality? How do grace and effort work together in terms of the spiritual disciplines? 1 Timothy 4.7, the theme verse for my spiritual disciplines book says... Is First Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Three parts to that. Let me kind of draw them in the air. Discipline yourself. Why? Well, there's a purpose. What purpose? The purpose of godliness, holiness, Christ-likeness, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12 says. Well, how do we get there? How do we pursue the sanctification, the godliness, without which no one will see the Lord? Well, you discipline yourself with the purpose of godliness. In other words, you don't just passively wait, living the life you want to live, waiting for God to zap you with holiness. No, we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. There are things we are to do, motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, but there are things we do, and they're called in the Bible spiritual disciplines. Discipline yourself with the purpose of godliness. That's not bodily discipline. Otherwise, bodybuilders would be the godliest people on the planet, right? More importantly, the very next verse says, for bodily discipline is of little profit. Some profit, but little profit because it says godliness is, is, eternal, is of eternal value. So how do you carry out that command to pursue godliness by being, means of these biblical practices? These, these disciplines, well, they're things you do. They're not attitudes or practices. And you can do them rightly or wrongly, but you're not going to be godly without doing them. The Pharisees did them wrongly motivated. Pharisees thought they were mechanical. If I just do these things, 
I'll be godly. Check the boxes. Is he a godly man? Is she a godly woman? Oh, yes. Well, how do you know? Reads the Bible every day, prays, fasts, tithes. Well, the Pharisees did all of that, and Jesus said they were the epitome of ungodliness. Yet in another place, he commended them for doing those things, but he said, you missed the point. The greater things were, were justice and mercy. But you thought these were ends. If I just do these things, check these boxes, I am godly. He said, no, those are means to godliness. The goal would be the mercy, the, the fruit of the Spirit, we might say. That's the goal. But we don't just wait until we're zapped with love and zapped with joy and zapped with peace. We pursue them in biblical ways, biblical practices with biblical attitudes. And so chief among them, especially personally, are the intake of the word of God in prayer. And you can pursue those. The Pharisees did. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. And they prayed, Lord, I, you know, bye-bye. Thank you. I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. They, they prayed. But the way they prayed, the attitude was wrong. So how does it work then, both in the personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines? How does effort and grace, how do they work together? I don't just sit back and just wait. I'll live the life I want. And if God wants me godly, someday he'll zap me with godliness. No, that's an error. Another error is thinking if I just do the right things, that makes me godly. No, that's Phariseeism. So how do they work together? Well, at the end of Colossians 1.29, Paul is talking about his ministry of making people mature in Christ. That's what he says in verse 28. Notice the last line there, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So I'm trying to lead people to Jesus and, and then lead them to Christ's likeness, present them mature in Christ. For this purpose, 129, for this purpose, I labor, comma, stop right there. Thus far, who is laboring? Paul. Paul is the one who went to bed tired at night, not God. Notice then, I labor, comma, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Paul went to bed tired at night, not God. And as he lay there thinking, boy, those stones today hurt. That criticism hurt. The opposition was hard. It, it was a long, hard day, and I'm sore. <laughs> Am I going to get up and do this again tomorrow? You bet I am. And he did. Where did that desire come from? It makes no sense. Where does the desire to get up and do it again come from? Where did the power to get out of bed, to go do it again and face it again, where does that come from? All glory to God, right? And Paul would have said, anything that resulted from my ministry, God did it. But Paul was the one who had to get up and go do it. Paul wasn't one who went to bed tired. Do you see that? Paul said, I labor. God didn't labor for Paul. But God gave Paul the desire to labor and the power to do it despite the cost. This morning, God gave you the desire to be here and the power to get done what needed to be done. When you practice your personal spiritual disciplines, you turn to the Word of God. Why does God give you the desire to do that? When you've got plenty of other things to do. Your neighbors don't do that. You've got many other things to do. You're not going to get done today. What makes you wedge in some time for the Word of God? Where do you get that desire? God did that. Where do you get the ability to find the time for that and to do that in those other biblical practices, including serve in the church? Where does that come from? God does that. But it feels like all of you. That's my point. Practicing spiritual disciplines doesn't just feel like you're floating through life and it's a flow all the time. And that if it feels like effort or fatiguing, that somehow the Holy Spirit's not in it. No, not wasn't true for Paul. It's not true for us. We can say when we serve in the church, I labor. But the desire and the power comes from God. The Holy Spirit gives that desire and the power. That's part of being a Christian. But we have to carry that out. 
And that's the call this morning. And I'm I'm proclaiming the truth that if you have this Holy Spirit, he gives you the desire to serve him. He gives you the desire to do something for his glory and for his kingdom. You can't do nothing. And he gives you the power to find a way to make it happen. But you're the one who has to show up. And you're the one who will be fatigued by. And time will come out of your schedule. This is what it's like in serving in the church. Here's another reason we should do so. To express our love for God. This is one of the clearest manifestations of loving God himself. When you're willing to serve him. Writer of Hebrews reminded his readers in Hebrews 6.10. That God would never forget the love they showed to him by serving his people. People, Listen, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. You loved me, God says. And the labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You showed your love to me by ministering to my people. Let me read it again. God is, is not unjust. I sometimes sign letters with this, you know, reminding fellow servants of God, Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You're still ministering. You show love to God when you minister to his saints, he says here. Now, obviously, the church isn't the only place in the world to, to serve God. Uh, we serve him in private expressions of our love. Luke 2.37 says that Anna served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You serve God when you do your work, your schoolwork unto the Lord. It says you serve the Lord Christ when we do this. You serve him when you give a cup of cold water in his name to someone. You, according to Matthew 25.40, Jesus will set the judgment regarding how we've ministered to others through providing nourishment or clothing or visitation. I mean, how we show love for him, that we're right with him by visiting others, showing ministry to others. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brother, and he says, even the least of them, you did it to me. So we showed our love to Jesus when we fed hungry people, visited people in prison, clothed people who needed clothing, Especially if they were his people, his children. By serving his children, he said, you serve me. But serving in the church is, a, is another clear way God wants us to express our love for him. Listen to Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Even unbelievers whose Houses have been affected by the flooding. You know, uh, do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to all, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is one of the ways we say, I love you to God when we show love to his people. Non-Christians can serve in the church, but they do so out of obligation, just sheer duty, but Christians perform the duty of service because of the deep love for the one they're serving, not just so that people will see them do it and ease their conscience. Serving God becomes like the labor of the Jewish patriarch Jacob, who worked in the flocks of his future father-in-law as a bridal price for the one he loved. So Jacob, Genesis 29, 20 says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Because of our love for him, we will serve here. Not just some prison-like drudgery. And there are a lot of things that I have done for the sake of God I wouldn't do (laughs) for for people. But I'm willing to do something that can be a prison-like drudgery if I don't realize I'm doing it to the Lord. Lord, I'm doing this for you. And I can be happy about doing something that I would be, it would be torture if I were forced to do for somebody else. A missionary in Africa was once asked if he really liked what he was doing. His response was unexpected when he said, do I like the work? No. My wife and I don't like dirt. 
We have reasonably refined sensibilities. We don't like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? We do nothing for Christ we do not like. God pity him if not, he said. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go, and we go. Love constrains us. Love constrains us. Love for God makes a delight out of duty. It lifts the most mundane ministry overseas or in Lakeside Bible Church. Out of the realm, it takes it out of the realm of just repetitious responsibility. Some may try to serve God without loving Him, but no one can love Him without serving Him. Spurgeon said, How, He is no Christian who does not seek to serve His God. He is no Christian who does not seek to serve His God. Fifth, we should serve in the church in order to bring pleasure to ourselves. Pleasure to others and pleasure to the heart of God. Here's the way King David put it in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will. There's a delight in doing what we were created to do. Remember Ephesians 2, 10, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. When we do what we're created to do, which God prepared beforehand, there's a satisfaction in that. What has become probably another one of the top 25 sermon illustrations of all time, but it's popular because it's so relevant, has to do with the 1981 Academy Award winning film, Chariots of Fire, which if you've never seen, you, you ought to see. It's about a real Christian named Eric Little, who became a missionary to China. There's since been two or three biographies written about his story that was highlighted in that movie, and he was the real deal. Um, it's a parallel story between him and another uh, fast runner who would win the gold medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics. But um, Eric Little was really the fastest man in the world, but because of his Christian convictions, he refused the opportunity to run in the 100 meters where he always won because their heat was going to be on Sunday. He was a Sabbatarian, and it, it's a great, uh, great story. But uh, they were children of missionaries in China. They had been raised there. They were committed to going back to China, but they had come back to uh, Scotland for, for school. And ultimately, Little would go back to China as a missionary. He would die in a prison camp, a uh, Japanese prison camp in China during World War II, and there are stories of his Christian uh, devotion there that became legendary. But he's still considered the greatest athlete Scotland has ever produced back in the uh, late 90s or sometime around then, a Scotsman won the 100-meter dash. And after it was over, first thing he said was, that's for Eric Little, who would have won it some 80 years earlier, but uh, removed himself because of his Christian convictions. So to this day, he's considered Scotland's greatest athlete. Well, as the story develops... His sister, Jenny, becomes worried that his training for the Olympics is turning his head. He's extremely popular, and he would go around with his sister, Jenny. They would give testimonies in places, in schools and churches, and uh, he, he was, you know, adored as a national hero. So people are always rushing up for his autograph and, and admiring him everywhere. And, and his sister, Jenny, sees all this and is fearful that his athletic popularity might be turning his head from the mission field, and especially as the Olympics is getting ever closer. And so finally, he has to explain to her why he continues to pursue the Olympics, where he would win a gold medal in the 400 meters, and set a world record, which even the movie doesn't show. Why he needs to continue to pursue the Olympics over her protests. So there's that great scene where he says, let's take a walk, and they go up into the heather in the hills, you know, there in Scotland. And when the wind is sweeping over them and he grabs her by the shoulders and says, Jenny, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose. <laughs> but when he made me, he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. A great line. When I run, I feel his pleasure. What's he saying? 
This is what God made me to do. And when I'm doing what God made me to do, I feel his pleasure. God has gifted every Christian for service. And there ought to be those places when times you're serving God, you feel his pleasure in that. Though it's something you would never do for money. You'd never do it for money. And no one sees you do it. You don't get any compensation for doing it financially or any recognition. And yet, you know, God sees. And he's all the audience you need. And that you feel his pleasure because you're, you're pleasing him. And when we serve in the church, it can be work, sometimes exhausting work, as it was for Eric Little to train and run. But despite that fatigue, we, we feel his pleasure in what we're doing. It's not a mere duty. There's a delight that comes from serving the king. What if God allowed you not to serve him? He wouldn't allow you to serve him. How would you feel? Suppose that were manifested when you, you came to church and... Uh, they just said, look, sit back, relax. You don't have to do anything. Just enjoy the ministries of the church. Everything will be done for you. Well, for a short while, perhaps, that'd be great. But what if then this growing restlessness, you, you wanted to do something, you know? Can I, you know, can I help take up the offering today? Ah, no, thanks. We'll manage it just fine. Later, you might say, well, let, let me volunteer to, to set up for the event or take down the tables and chairs. And they say, no, 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 you don't do a thing. We don't need you. Let the people of God do everything for you. Could you stand that? I would go insane if I couldn't do something for God and for his glory and for his kingdom, for his people. The pleasure is not in the avoidance of service. It's in the serving. How could any child of God find pleasure and satisfaction in not serving God? When you serve in the church, you're not only bringing pleasure to yourself like that, you bring pleasure to the people of God. In Acts 20 and verses 17 to 38, this is where Paul gives his farewell to the elders at the church in Ephesus. Remember that? He's told them, you'll never see my face again. They're out there on the beach. They'll ultimately kneel together and pray together, and they weep over him. And at the end, he says, when he finished, they began to weep aloud, and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. This is Acts 20, 37. Why? It's because his ministry had brought so much pleasure to them. God had blessed them through the words and through the works of Paul. And they just couldn't endure the thought of not seeing him again. He had blessed, God had blessed them so much through Paul that it just, it broke their hearts that they would not see him again. Think of some of the people who've served God greatly. Think of Paul, think of Martin Luther, think of Calvin, Edwards, Spurgeon, Mueller, Hudson Taylor, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Their service to God has been a delight to countless others. Not only in their own lifetime, but through their, their books. Let's bring it down a notch now to terms of fame and notoriety. Think of others you know who've served God wholeheartedly. A favorite preacher of yours or a missionary or pastor you've known. and You've been blessed. They've brought spiritual pleasure to your heart and to your life and to your family. Now bring it down another notch to people you've known very well here in this church or in another church that you've been a part of. People you've quietly seen work from, from week to week who've served God quietly and faithfully and these brothers and sisters of yours through serving God have blessed your life. They're among the people you love most dearly in all the earth, right? It's because serving God brings blessing and pleasure to God's people. We were just talking at lunch yesterday with some of the elders and um, situations where, you know, crisis occurred in the family. And, you know, have people from the church show up and, and, and pray. I remember when my dad had his first heart attack. He'd been pronounced dead nine times already that day by the time I got to the emergency room. It was packed with people already there just to pray, just to be there. And I, I get emotional 
You know, what has it been? 39 years later? Just thinking about that. Uh, I've already heard several testimonies, even this morning, of people who couldn't be at the conference because they were, you know, mudding out the houses of people in their church or Christians that they knew. And then right next door, there are people that don't have a church. <laughs> How do people live without the people of God? You know, I've done funerals where people have no church. And, you know, it's the most hopeless thing in the world. You've got just a little cluster of people and there's nobody to comfort them, nobody to help them, nobody providing a meal, nobody meeting their needs. And then you contrast that with people in the church and, you know, people are falling over themselves to bring food, to do something, to help when you serve in your local church, you bring pleasure to other people. You bless other people. And then we bring pleasure to the heart of God. Do not forget to do good and to share. Hebrews 13, 16 reminds us. Do good to other people. Share with other people. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Pleased, it brings pleasure to God's heart. When you do good to others, you mud out their houses. When you share with them, they've lost things that they need. You share to help them have necessities of life with such sacrifices. And it is a sacrifice. Sacrifice of your time. Sacrifice of something you paid for. And you have, but you share. And it says God is well pleased with that. If he's well pleased when we do good to others, surely it brings a smile to God's face. When we do good, as the Bible says, especially to those who are the household of faith. Galatians 16. Especially to those who are the household of faith. The very last chapter of the Bible gives us a glimpse of eternity in heaven. By the way, every picture of eternity that we have is congregational. There is no picture of heaven that we have anywhere in the Bible where we're alone. Will we ever be alone with God or alone? In heaven, well, maybe, but the Bible doesn't give us any indication of that. It's every picture of heaven, it's congregational. And in the very last chapter of the Bible, one of those glimpses is found, verse 3 of Revelation 22, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. His servants will do what servants do. They will serve Him. Now think about that. No, no more people to evangelize. No more needs to be met. No more church buildings to build. No more buildings to maintain. No more missionary work to support. And if there's something to do, why don't we let the angels do it? It's because it brings pleasure to the heart of God for us to serve Him. And it brings pleasure to us to serve in His city we cannot see our God, be with our God, not want to do something for Him. We will serve Him. Well, getting near the close, so let me, let me wrap this up. Is Lakeside Bible Church stronger because of you? I do too. And I should include, I don't know, there may be visitors from other churches. Is your church stronger because of you? Nutritionists speak of empty calories. You know, the kind of stuff that we got right out here? <laughs> that we all enjoy? At, you know, what they mean is they, they give us calories, but they don't really replace anything. Uh, they, they don't make us healthier. Uh, in other words, these calories have to be processed. To process them, the body has to use some of its nutritional resources but empty calories do little to replace those nutritional resources. You know, they cost us bodily resources, but they don't replenish them. Calories from other types of food, though, strengthen the body. As they're metabolized, they replenish our resources. Well, do you receive more ministry from the church than you minister to it? Or are you kind of like spiritual empty calories? <laughs> Now, look, for all of us, there are times when we are just in a receiving mode. 
That's normal. That's, that's what it's about. Just like in a marriage. Sometimes it's give, sometimes it's receive. In the church, sometimes it's give, sometimes it's all receive. And I've just heard stories even this weekend of people in the church who, you know, were far away, had medical crisis. People in their grow group, you know, reached out, helped them. And for those people in medical crisis, they were in receive mode. We're all there sometimes. Still, the goal of most of us should be to serve in the church in such a way it is stronger because we are there. And some people have those seasons where the bodily, physically, they, 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 they can't even be here. They can do nothing but be served. But most of us, most of the time, can be sure that because we're members, the church is stronger because we are. Everyone can do something to strengthen the work of the church if they really want to. Children. Shut-ins. I've, I've visited many homebound or nursing home Christians who maintained a ministry even though they could never attend the church. They prayed faithfully. Some even as a part of the church's prayer ministry. Some had a ministry of encouragement through, through cards, through calls. If that's all you can do. You know what? If you write a, a three-line card to someone, you can be sure people will read it. I asked my students every semester, I said, except for special occasions, when was the last time you, got a, you received a personal handwritten letter? You know what they usually tell me now? Never. Never. So you've got grown adults who have never received, except for special occasions, a personal handwritten letter. You write one now, and this is, just think about this in terms of your business, your Sunday school class, whatever your ministry is. Personal handwritten letter, even if it's just three lines, which you can write that as quickly as an email. You send it to someone, number one, you can be sure they'll read it because they never get anything like that. <laughs> it is the height of personal touch today. And we have, you know, there are many legendary stories of recent U.S. presidents who would write brief notes, you know, and, and the impact that has. The President of the United States took the time to write me this personal letter. Dr. Moeller is a big note writer, you know, with fountain pen. John MacArthur is that way. Steve Lawson's that way with, you know, with real pen, you know. Man's pen gets ink out of a bottle, you know. <laughs> and I, when I get those from Dr. Moeller, I save them. I've got a file folder with these notes from Dr. Moeller. I mean, you realize this was something he, he handled himself. This, he wrote this himself. It wasn't like if you, you get an email from the President of the United States and a spam email and you print them both off and you, you put them on the wall from here, they look exactly the same. And both of them came out of your printer, you know. There's nothing unique about that paper. You get a personal handwritten note from someone, you realize they handle this. They wrote it with their own hand. There's a personal touch to that. People can do that even if, if they're homebound. And it has an impact far beyond what people may, may realize. Leadership of your church can use that, for example. I mean, they need that encouragement too. Regardless of your limitations of time or strength or money, your church can be stronger and should be stronger because of you. Second, Will you do a servant's work with a servant's heart? The reason why so many won't do anything in the church, serve in the church, they don't have a servant's heart. They do the work of a servant on the outside, but they don't have a heart of a servant. And when they're treated like a servant, which inevitably happens to those who serve, they quit. You know, everybody says they want to be a servant until they're treated like one. And it will happen in the church. You will be up here for something. You'll come up the night before, set things up. You'll come early the time of the event. You'll be in there sweating, working during the time of the event. And afterwards, someone will come out and say, did you know there's no toilet paper in the ladies' bathroom? <laughs> no, ma'am, I hadn't been in there in a while. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, all, after all you do, you, get, you hear, the only feedback you hear is criticism. And the temptation is, well, if that's where it's going to be, they can have it. You serve in the church, that will happen. That will happen. But if you're serving just for the recognition, it's the wrong motive. You're serving God. 
and our rewards don't come, all of them, in this life. Every follower of the servant is going to be called to be a servant and will be treated like a servant sometimes. Every ministry is underappreciated at times. I had a pastor friend call me one time and he said, you know, I, I just often daydream about moving to some rural town and opening a feed store. <laughs> just, you know, the, just some of the week-to-week pressures and so forth, and I felt exactly the same way before. But despite the discouragement we all feel, there is no happiness in not serving God. There is no happiness in not serving God. Regardless of the discouragement I feel at the moment, there is no happiness in not serving Him. This is where the sense of call and giftedness matter. And then lastly, will you be a consistent worker, not a convenience worker? Too many today have said, yeah, I'll serve, but when it's convenient. You know, if you have a real emergency, call me. I will serve for a week, I'll serve for a month, but they're not consistent workers, dependable week after week after week, month after month, maybe year after year. No church can be effective without people like this. However, there is a commitmentlessness in the church. Fewer people want to commit to an ongoing ministry. More and more, you hear, I'll help if I can, call on me when you really need me. But Spurgeon said, we want laborers, not loiterers. We need people on fire, and I beseech you to ask God for them. Harvest can never be reaped by people who will not labor. And I do have one more there. Will you resolve never to retire from serving in the church? Paul warned his readers in 2 Thessalonians 3.13, But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Why did he give this command? Because we do grow weary in doing good. It happens to all of us. Everyone tires of his place of service sometime. We all get to the place where we say, I, am, I don't want to keep on. I remember an older couple in our church. They had been founding members. They were pillars of the church. They had done just about everything the church needed because it, it always needed people and they, there weren't enough people. But by the time I, I came well into, you know, 20 years or so into the church, uh, remember I'm looking over here because she would play the piano, which was on this side. And the husband sat on the first pew so that when she, you know, finished playing the piano, uh, she would go sit by him. Well, she said, reach the point, look, I think I, I've done this long enough. I need to retire. And so they moved to the second pew. And within a few weeks, they were back on the fourth pew. And another few weeks, they were back eight pews back. And within a few months, they were sitting on the very last pew, and that's where I last saw them. It was just indicative of their withdrawal from the church. Now, I'm not saying she needed to be the piano player until she died. But the point was that that was representative of their whole involvement in the church. When they had the most experience and knowledge and wisdom and could have been so helpful in so many ways, they, they withdrew. Resolve that you will never retire from serving God. There may be ministries in which you should retire. You, you have to retire physically or because of other limitations. But never think of retirement in serving the kingdom of God. Don't quit when you're the most qualified to serve. Don't lay down your experience when it's most needed. Don't look for a rocking chair in the church unless you're in the nursery. And we need you there. Die in the harness if you're able. Not in the pasture. So are you serving as the Lord would have you serve? If not, what specific steps would you take? Maybe there's someone you need to talk to today about that. The question should never be the attitude, how little can I do and not feel guilty? How much can I serve without neglecting my other God-given priorities? In the definitive bestseller on Pearl Harbor, book called At Dawn We Slept, Gordon Prang closes his book with these words. Of infinitely more value than the repair of shattered ships was the welding together of the American people into a mighty spear and shield of determination. <clears throat> no more did Americans ask whose fight it was or question what they should do about it. 
The Japanese gave each American a personal stake in the titanic struggle for the minds and bodies of mankind, which raged in Europe and Asia. After December 7, 1941, Americans no longer could look upon the war from a distance as an impersonal ideological conflict. The sense of outrage triggered a feeling of direct involvement, which resulted in an explosion of national energy. The Japanese gave the average American a cause he could understand and believe to be worth fighting for. After the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and after your salvation, Christian, you should never have to ask again whose fight it is, whose fight the church is in, and whether you should do something about it. All these things that Jesus did for us has given you a personal stake in the kingdom of God and its quest for the souls of mankind. And no longer can you look upon this war from a distance. Love for God should give you a feeling of direct involvement in the work of God and an explosion of supernatural energy for that work. He has given you a cause you can understand in which you can have the honor to serve. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the work of Jesus, for the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus. And we anticipate his return. And even after that, we will serve you forever. You are worth infinite service, every ounce of energy we have in this world, and to serve you forever and ever. And it will be our joy and delight to do so. Thank you for the privilege and the call and the gifting to serve. Thank you for your church. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.